Hello, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I want to welcome you to the Sounds True podcast, Insights at the Edge. I also want to take a moment to introduce you to Sounds True's new membership community and digital platform. It's called Sounds True One. Sounds True One features original, premium, transformational docu-series, community events, classes to start your day and relax in the evening, special weekly live shows, including a video version of Insights at the Edge with an after-show community question and answer session with featured guests. I hope you'll come join us, explore, come have fun with us, and connect with others. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. I also want to take a moment and introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation, our nonprofit that creates equitable access to transformational tools and teachings. You can learn more at soundstruefoundation.org. And in advance, thank you for your support. Hello, friends, and welcome. Welcome to this special edition of Insights at the Edge. I'm here with Dr. Gabor Mate. Gabor is someone whom I consider a friend and someone whose work I find incredibly illuminating. And I'm so pleased that he's here. A year ago, we had a conversation together when his book, The Myth of Normal, was published. And I felt at the end of the conversation that we weren't quite complete. In fact, we'd only gotten part way through the many things that I wanted to talk about. And at that time, I said to Gabor, would you be willing to come on? Well, you know, we'll put some time in between, but could we have a second part to our conversation? And he gracefully uh, said yes at the time. And now here we are. A year later, so much has happened in our worlds and in our lives, our respective worlds and our shared world. And I'm very grateful for Gabor for coming back a year later, fulfilling the promise that was spontaneously made live on the air. Gabor is a physician, author, and speaker who is world-renowned for his expertise on the interconnection of trauma, stress, addiction, illness, and the journey of healing. And it's the journey of healing particularly that I wanna highlight and emphasize in our conversation that we're gonna have here. His books include In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, on trauma and addiction, when the body says no, looking at stress and illness, and as I mentioned, the myth of normal, which explores trauma, illness, and healing in a toxic culture, a book that immediately hit the New York Times bestseller list, and a book that I have to say, look, if you haven't read it, please just read it. Uh, it's a kind of book uh, first of all, for me, what, 500 plus pages, and I went through each page, marking things absorbed in a page-turning, involved kind of way. I was so impressed by the book. Also, I want to let you know that with Sounds True, Gabor has partnered with Dick Schwartz, who's the founder of IFS, Internal Family Systems, and the approach to healing that Gabor now teaches. It's called Compassionate Inquiry. Dick and Gabor explore together in an online series called Embracing All of You, how Compassionate Inquiry and IFS relate, look at things similarly and differently. They also both offer demos working with students. Gabor engages in the compassionate inquiry technique in the Embracing All of You series. So you can learn more about that at soundstrue.com. All right, Gabor, welcome. Thank you, Tommy. Thanks for the intro and for the welcome. Here's what I'd like to start with. You're very forthcoming. You're, you're a super real person. You share yourself in a very just truthful way. And a lot of times when people ask you 
about healing, about what works, about what works in your life. You'll share, look, I'm a work in progress. I'm still figuring a lot of this stuff out. I'm still dealing with this, that, or that. And I wanted to start there because what it brings up for me is this question of a gap that I often feel in my own life between understanding and real embodiment, especially when it comes to the healing of trauma. And I want to understand how you deal with that gap, how you understand that gap. Yeah. Um, so there's much more to healing than just uh, knowledge or awareness. If it was a matter of intellectual awareness, I would have been healed a long time ago um, in terms of what I was aware of or what I could tell you. Um, but embodiment is the word. And uh, trauma um, happens, the disconnections that trauma imposes happen in the body and uh, in the nervous system and in the immune system and the gut and the nervous system. And for, for healing, all that needs to be worked through. And we can get to states of awareness and knowledge long before we're fully healed. So in a certain sense, it's a matter of catching up to ourselves. Now, recently, I was introduced to a song by Leonard Cohen. It's called Come Healing. And um, there's a wonderful line. It begins with, oh, gather up the brokenness, bring it to me now, you know. And But later on in the poem, or I should say the song that has been set to that poem, he sings, oh, troubledness concealing an undivided love, which means... Underneath the troubles that we experience on the surface, there is an undivided love, which we may not be always in touch with, but it's what guides us. And then he says, the heart beneath is teaching to the broken heart above. So that we can be brokenhearted on one level, but there's a whole full heart that's teaching that broken heart and it takes a while for that heart beneath to get through to the broken heart above and that's the process of healing and uh, all i ever do is when people ask me is i signal where in that journey from heart to heart do i experience myself so from a somatic perspective working with the body what have you found is effective to connect with that underlying full heart that's underneath our broken heart? You know, because I don't hear you talk that often about body-based interventions that you use yourself. And I'm, I'm very curious about that. Well, actually, uh, compassion inquiry is very, very body-based and uh, uh, we, we engage more with people's present state of being rather than with the material that they're carrying in their mind. And so to bring that. Yeah, I'd love to understand to, that more. Yeah. To bring that to myself personally, um, my mantra, one of my mantras is whatever, whatever there's tension, it requires attention. So if we're discussing a political topic, like what's happening right now in the world, um, and if I'm noticing a lot of tension in my body, then before I continue that discussion, if I mean, if I want that discussion to be a one that connects us, I better pay attention to what's going on in my body. If I'm experiencing tension inside, I better just notice that and put attention on it, rather than just try and push my way through it. So, it's um, I, I think it's what Jendon would have called a felt sense of, of 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 actually just being present to what's happening in the body and not to try and elide it, not to try to move through it or move past it or to ignore it. So, okay, if I were to check in with myself right now, what am I experiencing? Um, there's a fair degree of calm. I'm in a safe space, talking to a friend. And there's some tension, perhaps anxiety, Will I live up to my billing? Will this hour that we spent together be worthwhile for the for the participants and so on? So I would say I'm aware of both. I calm and there's a, some degree of tension in the middle of my chest. That's that's what I would report, and I need to pay attention to that. 
Okay, just to go a little deeper into it, because, you know, I notice tension a lot in my body, a lot. And it's one thing to pay attention to it, but you seem to indicate it's not about focusing on letting it melt away or dissolve or using the force of gravity so that it sinks into the earth. You're more just, what are you doing when you're paying attention to tension? You're noticing it because that's all it needs. That tension has got nothing to do with the present moment. I mean, let's say talk about my anxiety that this conversation won't be as useful as I'd like it to be. Okay, so what? You know, like, like, do I have to be perfect all the time? You know, can I be forgiven if this is my third teaching session of the day? What if I'm not at my best? Okay, I'll still be good enough, you know? So the, what's the tension about? It's an old fear of mine. It's got nothing to do with the present moment of not being good enough. Now, that part of me that fears not being good enough is a child part. All that child ever needed was attention. Didn't need reassurance. Just needed to be held. So I don't have to make it go away and tell myself mantras or spiritual techniques or anything to evaporate it. Just have to, oh, there it is. Well, here you are. I notice you. I see you. Thanks for showing up. That's all. Okay, Gabor, but I'm going to dig in here and I'm going to be confessional at the same time, which is you've shared uh, from your own, you know, I hope this is good enough, lives up to the billing. And, you know, I remember when you and I went to lunch not that long ago and I shared with you that I was nervous about being with you and I'm nervous about having this conversation. And in our conversation, you identified that I was projecting something about my relationship with my father where I needed to earn his affection. And I'm very aware of that. So I'm aware of that coming into this conversation. I have the insight. I know that's exactly what's going on. I know that. And it hasn't actually helped my anxiety, reduce my anxiety. I'm just aware of it. Well, I tell you what I would say, arrogant as it sounds, you just haven't had the right kind of therapy yet. I know you've been in therapy forever. I mean, we all have been, but uh, there's something that hasn't been. Let's not. Let me put it not negatively that you haven't had the right kind of therapy. Let me say that there's something you haven't worked through yet. You've understood it intellectually, but you haven't worked it through. So, in the moment, is there tension there for you? Uh, yeah, and I don't, you know, it's it's interesting because I don't want to make it only just about me and about you, and I want to make sure that our listeners are tracking yeah. uh with us i noticed that in nice, sharing n- it nice, nice deflection i know but i noticed in sharing it there was a dramatic reduction okay. in tension and that naming it okay naming it really helped so i i think that's an important point well i think that's the key point actually because what are you doing when you're naming it you're just accepting it you're recognizing it which is all you ever needed as a child but you didn't get it you weren't seen. So you give yourself that seeing. Like if, if you want attention to go away, <clears throat> you're basically saying to a part of yourself, go away, leave me alone. In other words, you're rejecting yourself, which was your, not necessarily ever your father's or your mother's intention, but it was your subjective experience of not being seen of of being demanded more of than you could provide. So if you can see yourself and just name it, like you just said, of course the tension will abate. Now, what if you what if you were to do that on a regular basis? Ah, here you are again. You're still afraid, aren't you? Well, I got it. You know, so I think noticing and being with it is the working through. So link this to the approach of compassionate inquiry. And for people who are hearing about compassionate inquiry for the first time, if you can give them an introduction to how it works. Well, fundamentally, um, along with my friend Dick, um, although I formulate it differently, um, I do believe that all aspects of ourselves, whether we like them or not, whether we judge them or embrace them, they're there for a reason that none of us are are broken fundamentally, that um, 
and, and, and my view, my view is that if we're curious about all aspects of ourselves and of our experience or that of our clients, and if we're curious in a compassionate way, then all will reveal itself and we get to integrate it. So if I said to you, for example, um, I could ask you a question. Um, why are you tense? <sighs> now, is that a question or is it a statement? It's a statement. I notice you're tense and I don't like it. I want you to be different. What if I said to you or to myself, huh, I noticed this tension here. What do you think that might be about? Well, that's a question. So the issue is, can we approach ourselves with a sense of compassionate inquiry? And furthermore, my belief is that we all carry the answers within ourselves. We actually do. I just um, read and reviewed Peter Levine's upcoming autobiography. So it's, it's entitled An Autobiography of Trauma. And um, let me just actually uh, quote something from it, if I may. Okay, because Peter's one of my mentors, and um, <clears throat> he says it so beautifully. He says, in working with thousands of adults and many children over a period of more than 45 years, I have found that all children and most adults with their younger selves still intact within have the same innate pull of curiosity and, and exploration. It is this very vibrant this is this very vibrant impulse that can be harnessed harnessed to support our healing. And so he, I believe along with Peter is that as long as this curiosity about ourselves is, is, is alive, we can still grow. So my approach is simply, there's nothing wrong with you. Every aspect of you came along for a reason to support your survival at some point. It may no longer be there to support you. It may not get in your way. You stumble over it rather than being... Uh, helped along by it but let's get curious about it and then the answers will be within yourself the answer the truth is within yourself we all carry the truth within ourselves and with the right compassion the right curiosity that truth will reveal itself or to quote the great jewish boy from nazareth yeshua who said that that which you shall bring out of yourself will save you and so it's just a matter of helping people bring out the truth of themselves. So, Gabor, in my confessional moment, you said, you know, in a way that was it stung a little bit, but I also appreciated it, especially the way you reframed it, that there's something you haven't worked through yet, which no. is why this is still uh, an active thing and that compassionate inquiry would help. And my provocative question to, to you would be, how come the compassionate inquiry method hasn't in your own life delivered more of the results that you would like it to deliver? What do you think is that gap, which kind of comes back to the original question I asked, which is really what I'm trying to sort of tell myself the truth about, about my own life and, and trying to understand deeply. Well, first of all, you're putting words in my mouth. Okay. When I said that you haven't fully worked it through yet, I never said anything about compassion inquiry. All I said was you haven't worked it fully through yet. There might be any number of ways of working it through. Uh, sure. inter internal family systems might be one of them. Um, sure. uh, Peter Levine's somatic experience might be another. EMDR might be another. Psychedelics might be another. I never sure. said. Sure, fair said, enough. Okay. I do believe it would help you, but I never said it. Okay. And I certainly never said it in exclusion of other modalities. I don't claim it to be the be all and the end all. Sure. No. So that's the first point. The second point is in terms of myself. Well, Tammy, did you know me 10 years ago? Personally? No, I didn't. Okay. No. Are you in a position to tell me where I am now as compared to where I was 10 years ago? Right. No, I think it's a beautiful point. And I'm the point. Yeah, so, so, no, so, so, no, I so, hear yeah. your point, but I think it helps me appreciate my own journey too. Because okay. where uh, I am now is not where I was 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, even yeah. though there's, you know, there's so much more growth that I wish for, yeah. for myself. But yeah. it's so, a, it's a so, deep way of being kind to ourselves to see it that way. Fair enough. So if you ask me, 
am I complete yet? No, I'd say I'm not complete. Um, however, I would not, you know, I, I've often said this, you know, um, pardon the repetition of a joke if it's tiresome for you, but I've often said, you know, um, well, in a month and uh, six days, I'll be 80 years old, okay? And uh, I say, thank God for growth and development because I'm almost 80 and I wouldn't want to be as young and stupid as I was when I was 78. So it's a, it's an ongoing process, you know? And I don't know, I'm not looking for perfection. I'm just looking for growth. So in fact, it's helped me a lot. I've come a long way. And, um, and, and the other thing that's helped me is that I'm, I'm, I know you're in, you're in a loving relationship with somebody and um, as am I, and my partner does not want to tolerate the gap between what I know and what I can present and teach and then how I live my life at home, you know? So I'm constantly being called upon to, to walk, to talk, you know? And so both my own personal journey, which involves that compassionate questioning and other modalities as well, including yoga and meditation and reading all kinds of great teachers and occasionally reaching out for help. Um, and also, being called to to act what i know all that is contributing to myself being far more present far more accepting of myself far more capable of um, getting to that heart below the surface uh, than i ever used to be so that's where i'm at so i'm very happy to report that you know i just want to thank you gabor because i think this is an important uh appreciation of growth that many of us can have in relationship to ourselves. I notice it's helping me soften. So thank you towards myself. Yeah. Good. And I also just want to check in you and I, we're okay, right? We're good. What makes you ask that? Because we had a fiery exchange. Is this what you call a fiery exchange? Oh boy. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You haven't seen me in fire exchanges. If you thought this was fire, I thought this was one of the most gentlest discussions. So, okay. so, so this speaks to someone what you were experiencing during this exchange, because I wasn't experiencing any fire. I, exper I experienced a disagreement, but so what? Very good. Very good. Okay. You quote A.H. Almas, a friend of ours, and... There are several uh, times that you quote him in The Myth of Normal that really got my attention, really helped deepen my understanding. And I'm going to pull out one of them here. Lack of compassion is a suppression of hurt. Yeah. And I thought this was really uh, an important uh, uh, like light bulb for me that went on in times. So even here, when I'm talking about not being compassionate towards my own development and how long it's taking me to grow in certain kinds of ways and the frustration I yeah. feel underneath it, I just like, I'm just so hurt. I can't believe I'm still going through all of this, you know, lack of compassion is a suppression of hurt. So I wonder if you can explain that more for people. Well, almost as you know, and as we have discussed is one of my great teachers, um, mostly through his writings. Um, but I'll quote another teacher of mine <clears throat> who is no longer alive, sadly. His name is uh, Yak Panksep, P-A-N-K-E-S-E-P-P. -P. He was an effective, affective, effective, but also affective neuroscientist, which means he studied the neuroscience of emotions. And uh, he points out that our brains are wired for a whole slew of emotions. We have brain circuitry for various emotions, which include grief and, and fear and lust and anger and caring and curiosity and playfulness and so on. We're born with these systems in place in our brain. They need to develop, but they're there. And we share them with other mammals. So care, which is... The, if you want to put it in different words, is the compassion for the vulnerable, because that's what helps a parent look after the helpless infant. It's something that's wired into us. So it's unnatural for it not to be there. So what happens? Caring 
is vulnerable, if I care for you, then if you suffer or die or let's just say suffer, that hurts me. So for caring, they have to be vulnerability. But what if I was really hurt when I was small, so hurt, I can't stand being vulnerable. Then uh, out of self-defense, my care system will shut off. And then my capacity to care and then be compassionate is to that degree limited. And in the case of psychopaths and sociopaths, it's even um, totally obscured and, 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 and um, disabled, all because of vulnerability. And it's very interesting what I can tell you about um, people who have committed murder. If you go into prisons, and I don't know if you've done this or not, but I've, I've worked with a number of projects that goes into prisons and work with lifers who've killed people. Once they work through their stuff, they become the sweetest, most gentle people in the world. Unbelievable, but I've seen people in death row like that. So have others. Anybody who's worked with prisoners will tell you this. Now, what does that mean? It means that they're very shut down of caring to the point where they could kill another human being came out of a deep hurt. And the more sensitive you are by nature, genetically, the more hurt you're going to be. Some of the worst criminals are the most sensitive people in the world. And by sensitive, I don't mean that they are aware and care for the feelings of others. I mean that they were born so sensitive that they were hurt much more easily than others. They felt more. When they were hurt, they felt more. The more they felt, the more pain they felt, the more they had to shut down. The more they shut down, the less compassionate and the more cruel they became. It, once those of them that can work through their pain and their trauma actually become very sweet and loving people. And I've seen this repeatedly. And so have many others. So that's an example of what Dalmas was talking about is that the lack of compassion is a hidden hurt, is based on a hidden hurt. Gabor, do you believe, it sounds like you do from what you're saying, that we're born with different levels of sensitivity, that some of us are genetically more sensitive than others? And what, what is the research behind that? Or Well, that's the research, yeah. is that some are just born more sensitive than others. And that means certain chemical messengers in their brains are differently configured. Um, and it means that these people, when they're well-treated, they become creators and artists and leaders and shamans and uh, whoever, joyful, but when they're hurt, they're traumatized all the more. And uh, as a, I think a Canadian born, but now he's working in California, a pediatrician called Tom Boyce wrote a book called uh, was it Daffodils and Dandelions. And uh, one of them is the very sensitive kid and the less sensitive kid, they can endure a whole range of experiences and not be so hurt by it. The more sensitive ones, they're more hurt. So I think that's what's genetic. When the people talk about genes for addiction or, or mental health issues, no. What they're actually finding is genes for sensitivity, which means that the environment acting on those sensitive genes will create more pain. And all addictions and all mental health conditions, in my view, are ways of coping with pain. And so the more sensitive you are, the more prone you are to fall into one of those diagnostic categories, not because the genes dictate those categories, but because the sensitivity potentiates the pain that you're trying to escape from. That's my understanding. And do you think you're one of those people who has hypersensitivity genetically? I don't know. Uh, I see people, well, I truly don't know. 
I, I see people far more sensitive than I are, than I am far more um, affected by what happens, you know, um, far more overwrought when things go wrong. Now, maybe I have more defenses in the way. I certainly am sensitive. Um, I do feel and see things that other people often don't, but I wouldn't put myself in the most sensitive category, not compared to some people that I know. Yeah, I think the question that comes up for me and um, is, you know, I, I've heard a lot of people use highly sensitive person language to sort of defend or explain why it's so hard for them to make healing progress in their life or this or that. And I wonder how to not use that information or that possibility as a kind of excuse for all kinds of things. Yeah, it should not be a limitation. It should actually be opening for more liberation and more creativity and more joy and more freedom, actually, properly understood. So um, neither are, are um, genetically determined temperament, if you like, nor what's happened to us should ever be used as an excuse for just staying um, um, static and stuck in a certain pattern. The more sensitive you are, it also means when the environment is more supportive and, and you take on the task of healing, you're also more capable of growth. So it shouldn't, it should on no account be an excuse. Let's talk more about this uh, full, complete, undisturbed, uh, if you will, heart, the full heart underneath our broken heart. Yeah. How, how do you experience that when you do experience it? Tell, describe it to me, what it's like for you. I can't because um, I so rarely, if ever, fully experienced it. It's, it's, it's a knowledge that I have that's below the level of conscious experience. Now, I don't regard myself as a spiritual teacher of any kind. The spiritual teachers who are worth their salt have all directly experienced this. So in age, almost Hamid Ali, you know, uh, um, Thomas Hubel, perhaps, Nekhat um, Tolle, Nadia Shanti, um, these people have experienced that um, in a conscious level. I can't say that I have, all the more remarkable that I completely accept the truth of it. So I don't know, on some level, there must be some experience there, but I can't give it to you in the kind of words that somebody with that direct experience could. Okay, I, uh, I appreciate that, uh, that honesty and the interesting point that you can still state its facticity, if you will, without even knowing it wholly in your own experience. And I, I wonder how you can do that. I don't know. <laughs> it's just what happens for me. Um, you know, um, also I read a lot and I, I believe people. I mean, I at least, not I don't believe everybody, but I have a good sense who to believe and who to not. So when uh, Moses sees the burning bush that is not consumed by the flame, I'm seeing a truth that is um, logically doesn't make any sense, but it sustains itself, you know? And uh, when the Buddha talks about his experience or when Thomas talks about his experience or Eckhart does or Hamid Ali does, I've talked to Adyashanti, I, I believe them. And uh, nothing in me mistrusts what they're telling me when, I read Hafiz, I read um, Rumi. I believe them. I, I sense they're coming from a place of deep truth. Something in me senses that. So perhaps I'm influenceable that way. Or more likely, how, what they're saying and how they're saying it resonates with something inside me deeper than the intellect can comprehend. In the final section of the myth of normal, you devote yourself to looking at these paths to wholeness, approaches to healings. Yeah. And you you offer a description of uh, six different A's, and we won't go into all of them, but you talk about people should read it in the book, authenticity, 
agency, anger, healthy anger, and then also acceptance. And then later in the book, you add in activism and advocacy and how these are all parts of what it takes, if you will, to activate our principles of healing in our life. And, you know, in my language, I would say something like being true to who we really are, mobilizing our, this is my language, mobilizing our soul's force, moving it out. And I wanted to talk to you about the activism and advocacy component, because I think often people wouldn't necessarily associate that with personal healing. Like how, how does that connect? And I know you've been very active, very vocal, a full participant, global citizen in what's been happening in the Mideast recently. And without going into the details of the Mideast conflict, what I want to look at instead is just this whole notion of activism and advocacy as an element of our healing. Yes. Well, those are not prescriptions. They are guidelines. Uh, Some are called and some are not. Um, My friend Nan Golden, the, um, the photographer, great photographer who's Photography has been exhibited in museums from the Met to the MoMA to, you know, the the Tate in Britain and so on. Um, but she also used to be an opiate addict. And uh, at some point she realized that the Sackler family, the family that funds so many artistic institutions or medical schools, also the same ones who profited off the marketing of uh, oxycontin as a less addictive or non-addictive opiate and tens and hundreds of thousands of people have died and so for for nan and there's a wonderful movie um about nan golden um that's actually available you can watch it online i think it's not netflix but apple tv or you can look it up you know i the, the, the title of the movie, something about all the beauty or something um, escapes me. But for Nan to say she had sit-ins and, and lions in the museums saying, take this name off. These people profited off the death of tens of thousands. She would not have been true to herself if she had not engaged in that activism. So for her, the healing process involved activism following an inner call so it's not a duty that somebody imposed on her it's an inner call that she obeyed it's the same with my activism in the middle east like you say we're not going to go into the um my views on what's just happening or what's been happening for a long time but i made the decision a long time ago um that i feel so strongly about this issue that if i don't express myself I'd be doing violence to myself. And so that I would express myself regardless of whether my family liked it or not. Um, At some point, my views on this, actually in 1967, after that war, my views on that conflict got me kicked out of my father's house. And I could understand why. My parents being Holocaust survivors, um, as was I as an infant. But I made this decision that for me, um, the activism, the advocacy, the the truth telling publicly was more important than any of my personal relationships. And um, that's a calling that I had. Something was calling me there. And uh, not to have obeyed that call would have been to suppress myself. So activism and and, uh, advocacy are not prescriptions for everybody because not everybody's called that way. If you're not called that way, don't do it. Don't force yourself into anything. But if it's there, I suggest you pay attention. It it actually sounds like if anything, the quote unquote prescription, and I realize you're an MD that doesn't give out prescriptions and this kind of conversation very often, but it has to do with not suppressing ourselves versus the form of expression that is true for us. It's like, oh, the the key is don't suppress. Is that fair to say? Yeah, Yeah, which goes back to authenticity. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why people suppress themselves. And uh, you and I may have discussed this in our conversation last year is that 
there's this tension that so many of us grow up with where um, we want to be attached to, we want to be connected with, we want to be long held and loved, but we also have this need to be ourselves. And sometimes all too often, I think perhaps in your growing up and in my growing up and in a lot of people's growing up, they found that if they were truly authentic and expressed themselves, the acceptance wasn't there. So then there was this tragic conflict with what I call authenticity on the one hand and attachment on the other. Ideally, you and I can be true to ourselves, express what we believe and feel, and still remain friends and supportive of one another. That's the ideal. But what happens in a relationship, very often early in childhood, but even later on in life, where if I'm being myself, that is to say, if I'm expressing myself, you're not going to love me and accept me. Now I have a decision to make. Do I want attachment still? Like as an infant, I had no choice in the matter. Or do I want authenticity? And I often say to people, you can, pain free, being pain-free is not an option. Because you can have the pain of suppressing yourself. Or you can have the pain of not being accepted. If that's what's on the table. Then you have to decide which kind of pain would you rather have. Some people would rather have the pain of suppressing themselves and still being accepted. Some people would rather have the pain of, be, of being themselves and not being accepted. Now, ideally, we'll find situations in life where we can be both. I mean, that's what we're working towards. But temporarily, we're going to go through some pain one way or the other. question is, which pain would you rather have? And nobody can tell you which one you should choose. You uh, said this uh, statement that I wrote down and have referred to very often in our last conversation about disillusionment. And yeah. would you rather hold on to your illusions or go through disillusionment? And yeah. I think this notion of there's a way to possibly be in the world that's pain free. Is it fair to say that that is an illusion? Well, I don't know if the Buddha still experience pain after his enlightenment. Um, but until I get to that point, I can't answer it, except to say I can't envision a world in which pain is, doesn't exist. I mean, on the sheer physical level, pain is always going to exist. Um, on the emotional level, I think it's... Um, do you know anybody who's at all emotionally alive? And I don't care which side of the political spectrum they're on, but if they're emotionally alive, do you know anybody whose heart is not broken right now about what we're witnessing and what we have been witnessing for a while now? Again, I'm not making a political statement. I'm saying that I don't have any option of not feeling pain. So what? I'm bringing it forward because I also pulled uh, this quote from the myth of normal healing is about unlearning the notion that we need to protect ourselves from pain, from our yeah. own pain. Yeah. And I thought that's such a powerful statement because I can see how I do protect myself from pain. I try to all the time and how it doesn't really work, but uh, it's just like a natural instinct. Of course, I'm going to protect myself from pain. I don't want pain. Who does? Yeah. Well, I forget who wrote um, the Tibetan book of living and dying and a Tibetan. So Gil Rinpoche. Yeah. Yeah. Who, as we know, <laughs> was one of these characters who could convey beautiful and deep and very inspiring teachings, but he didn't exactly live the life that was consistent with those teachings. But nevertheless, what he spoke was absolutely beautiful. And he said at some point, don't run away from your pain. Because don't we know that all our attempts to run away from the pain will only create more suffering. And then we won't know what life is to teach us. I'm paraphrasing him now. It's a beautifully stated, um, maxim that he expressed in that book and he says don't try and run away from your pain protection from pain he says doesn't work now i, I want to go back for a moment and not lose track of these different 
non-prescriptive six A's that could be calling, because you spoke uh, beautifully about authenticity. And then agency is something in, especially as you're talking about the heartbreak of our time, I think a, a lot of people, and then there's also acceptance. I think there's a lot of confusion here. Do I accept what's going on? I feel helpless. I don't feel like there's anything I can do. Uh, this relates to my own health. Do I find some way to find an agentic position? Yeah. So acceptance does not mean resignation or tolerating something. It means accepting that that's how it is right now. Not resenting it, not railing against it, but saying this is how it is. Now, how would I like to approach reality? That's what acceptance means. So it's not a, you know, my partner beats me and I'm going to accept that. That's not acceptance. That's tolerating or putting up with or resigning yourself. Acceptance says, my partner beats me. What would I want to do about it? If I had agency, what would I do? So acceptance just says, this is how it is. Now, how do I approach it? And, you know, and Eckhart says in one of his books, whether it's uh, the, um, the myth or normal, uh, he only wishes here with that book. Sorry. Yeah, I meant the par of now or... Um, A new, new earth. Yeah. New earth. He says in one of the books that in his, the situations that, that, that bother you, there's only three things you can do. Um, you can uh, leave it. You can try and change it. And if you can't do either, you might as well accept it. So you and I live in Vancouver right now. We might as well accept that it's going to rain here in the wintertime. We may wish to travel away from it, but there's no point railing against the rain. And as Eckhart says in one of his, you know, he's so funny sometimes. He says in one of his talks that you can, there's something in the mind that will even make the traffic jam wrong. You know, it'll make you superior to the traffic jam. Because you're re resenting the traffic. Well, if you're going to be in a traffic jam, you might as well accept that you're, you're in a traffic jam and not, not generate a lot of tension. So that's what acceptance means. Not, it's not tolerance or resignation. Can you just uh, connect a link for people about when we suppress, whether it's our authenticity or our healthy anger or whatever of our emotions we might be suppressing, bottling down, how that leads to uh, health, health challenges, disease, like how, what's the mechanism? Well, that's very simple. And um, that, that is laid out in the myth of normal. It's also the subject of my book, When the Body Says No. Um, which um, is very simple. So let's say take healthy anger. I said that we were wired for anger, which we are. That's one of the, our brain is wired for anger. So is the wiring of a cat wired for anger. You look at a mother cat and try and interfere with one of her kittens. You're going to see mother anger. And so healthy anger is simply a boundary defense. It says, you're in my space, get out. You're hurting me, get out, get out. That's healthy anger. It's in the moment. It's protective it sets a boundary that's all it is now the role of healthy anger is to protect your boundaries the role of emotions in general is to let in what is nurturing and healthy and welcome and loving and to keep out what isn't by and large that's the role of our emotional system now if i asked you a trick question it would be this what's the role of our immune system oh it's the same to keep up what's not healthy and dangerous and toxic and to allow in what is nurturing and, and supportive. That's all the immune system does. In other words, the immune system and the emotional system have the same roles. Can you see that it's far? Can you get mm -hmm. that? I can. Yeah. Yeah. Now here's the news that is only news to those that are not aware with the science, which means most physicians who are not aware of the science, they're not taught this stuff. But from the scientific perspective, the immune system and the hormonal apparatus and the nervous system and the emotional system in our brains and bodies are not different systems. They're one system. And the science that studies that is called psychoneuroimmunology. It's not even vaguely controversial. And so that when you suppress emotions, guess what? You're also interfering with the immune system. And when you look at 
all the people with autoimmune disease, multiple sclerosis, Crohn's, colitis, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue. Um, what else could I mention? Fibromyalgia, um, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus, scleroderma. If you look at their life patterns and personalities, they're all people who suppress themselves. Not because they wanted to, but because in childhood, there was that tension I already talked about between authenticity and attachment. To stay attached, they had to suppress their authenticity and they had been doing it all their lives because that's what they're programmed. And that emotional self-suppression then plays havoc with the nervous system because it's the same system. It's really that simple. So people that repress healthy anger have diminished activity of their immune systems. And there was a study that um, I mentioned in the myth of normal, which is, by the way, why women get more autoimmune disease, much more. 70, 80% of autoimmune disease happens to women because in as between the genders in this culture, which was the one that's expected to suppress themselves, suppress healthy anger, serve the needs of others, ignore their own, is by and large women. And that's why they get all this autoimmune disease. And there was a study out of Massachusetts. They looked at 2,000 women over a 10-year period. This is really interesting to me. Those women that were unhappily married and didn't express their emotions in that 10-year period were four times as likely to die as those women who were also unhappily married, but they did express their emotions. So self-suppression, we pay a heavy price because the mind and the body can't be separated. So that's the connection. Very clear. Thank you. One last thing I want to talk about, Gabor, mm -hmm. which is this is something that I feel you and I have in common to some degree, at least, which is this, uh, I, I, I would say, it, a deep love of the truth, of truth telling. You already shared with us about uh, your commitment to authenticity, even when it meant serious uh, challenges within your family related to the Mideast conflict from many decades ago. And, you know, in my own life, Sounds True is called Sounds True for a reason. And mm -hmm. when I finally made a little audio program to share my heart with people, I called it Being True. And I was like, that's the one thing I can stand by is that I want to be true. It's so important to me. And I will sacrifice for that. And I will speak up even when I may appear this, that, or the other way that, you know, I'm concerned about, I'm still going to do it because right. I have to be true. I have to, I have to, I have to. And I know that in you from our interactions, what do right. you think that is? Why are some people so like, this is their, their touchstone, their thing. Like I just have to be a true, a true person. That's my thing. I can't rightly answer that question for you. Um, I think that drive is in all of us. Um, let me go back to quoting Peter Levine again, if I may. He's talking about this capacity for truth-seeking. And then he says, sadly, this primal instinctual energy is all too often forced underground by oppressive over-socialization or overwhelmed by toxic stress and trauma. Nevertheless, this powerful resource lives deep within all of us and lies in wait, ready to be awakened at the right moment. In spite of this pervasive trauma, he says, I believe this creative curiosity, this creative curiosity and inner sense of vitality and exuberance was always present in my life and what helped to take me from there to here. He's talking about himself. Now, I think that um, if I were to try and wrap my head around this question that you just posed. We both suffered, but I don't think we suffered so deeply that we had to completely give up ourselves. There was something in the environment that both made us aware of our suffering. And I think about the unfairness of the world, but there was enough support somewhere that allowed us to retain some connection to ourselves, which is where that search for truth emanates from. So I think it's a combination of both suffering and some degree of support that allowed that suffering not to overwhelm us. That's, that would be my answer. And in your own life, though, just speaking for yourself for a moment, 
how would you answer why being true, not my word, but however you would describe that, uh, is such a priority for you? Why is that your, I mean, I would say it's one of your number one orienting principles, in, at least in my conversations with you. I don't like how it feels when I'm not that way. When I lie to my wife or manipulate or, or, or um, try and hide some truth or, or um, betray what I know to be true. I don't, I don't like, I don't like what it feels like. I, I, I don't like it. I like it when I can be true and, and, and open and, 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 and free. It's just, it's a preference that's, that's there for me. It's a very, more than a preference. It's a, it's a imperative for me, which is not to say that I'm always true to it. But is this to say that it never disappears and it keeps calling me back when I stray from it? All right, I'm going to sneak in a final question. I heard that you took two weeks off from digital engagement as part of a personal reset. What was that time like for you? How did it affect you? What'd you do? Well, um, it came at a time of high stress. I'd just been through, it was a difficult year for me and I'm not going to go into the details why. When I say difficult, I mean emotionally challenging. And then I had this long, intensive, more intensive than it than I would have chosen, uh, speaking healing trip in Europe and I came back really bagged. And I was talking to a friend of mine, you might know her or of her, Eve Ensler, or the former Eve Ensler V, the playwright who wrote The Vagina Monologues and a wonderful author and talk about activist. And she said, you should turn everything off for two weeks. And so I did. And I turned off everything digital, didn't check my emails or messages or the ranking of my books on Amazon or who said what about who or, you know, I just... And I actually devoted time to meditation and yoga every day and just taking care of my body, being with my wife. And uh, it was quite an education about how I sprinkle myself all over the place unnecessarily, habitually, spending time with things that don't make any difference at all. And so it was a real healing time for me. And um, it hasn't left me. And as long as I keep the practice up to a certain degree, so um, I found out what any spiritual teacher worth their salt says almost right off the bat is that you're never going to find satisfaction and fulfillment from the outside. And as Alma says, that drive for the outside to, to get satisfaction from the outside is actually a wound to the self. Like if I, have to, if I have to check several times a day how my books are doing on Amazon, which is quite irrelevant, actually, because they're doing what they're doing. Checking doesn't make any difference. But if I need that external validation, then I'm, it's an assault to the self, as almost points out, because I'm saying to myself, I'm not enough without that external buttress. Now, that's a wound to the self. And we all wound ourselves that way in our society and vagals and seduces us into betraying ourselves that way to think that we're going to get it from the outside. Well, in those two weeks, I found out just how much liberation there is in not looking to the outside. And um, that's what all the spiritual pathways are, I think, here to teach us anyway. Gabor, I want to take a moment uh, to thank you and to celebrate you. So uh, join me, uh, if you will, if it's authentic for you in this moment. Uh, celebrate our connection. Uh, sounds true. Uh, celebrates uh, the work you're doing with us, the program we made with you and Dick and the other contributions you make on our platform. And I, I just want to say, you know, the fact that you're alive doing what you're doing, it inspires me and so many people. So thank you. Thank you, friend. Wow. Thank you so much. And thank you, my friend. Thank you so much. And uh, it's a pleasure. And if you'd like to watch Insights at the Edge on video and participate in the after show Q&A session with our guests, come join us on Sounds True One, a new membership community 
featuring award-winning original shows, live classes, community learning, guided meditations, and more with the leading wisdom teachers of our time. Use promo code PODCAST to get your first month free. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. Sounds true. Waking up the world. <laughs>